You know as well as I do that we're used to playing with a different rule book. There's the Starfleet way, and there's the Maquis way. And you want to do things the Maquis way? That's right. That's always worked for us. That's the Maquis way too, isn't it? And if you want to keep doing it the Maquis way, that's fine with me. We can do that tomorrow, the next day, every day until you report to Lieutenant Tubok. You understand me? What? How does a Starfleet crewman answer a question? Yes, sir. Welcome to Trekno Babble Psychobabble, where art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your resident Trek nerd, and cheese so dangerous it will blow up your ship. And I'm Elizabeth, student of humanoid psychology, buttered or unbuttered. Our mission each week is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. This week, Elizabeth and I continue our series on the Maquis and delve into the series for which they were created, Voyager. We are exploring what makes a Maquis a Maquis. The second episode of the series from 1995 called Parallax was written by Brandon Braga and Jim Trombetta and directed by Kim Friedman. Newly minted First Officer Chakotay finds himself with a personnel issue. Acting Chief Engineer Lieutenant Carey has had his nose broken by Bellana Torres, Tuvok wants to inform the captain, throw Torres in the brig, issue a court-martial. On the other hand, the other Maquis on board are ready to overthrow the chain of command and commandeer Voyager for themselves. Allowing Miss Torres to get away with a clear violation of regulations sets a bad example for the rest of the crew. We just want you to know that if things do get out of hand, we're ready to back you. What does that mean? In case you want to take control of the ship, you have our full support. So on the one side, I'm facing a Vulcan who wants to court-martial you. And on the other, I'm facing all the Maquis who are ready to seize the ship over this. You've turned this into one lousy day for me, Torres. Her anger management issues aside, Jacote wants to promote Torres to chief engineer over Kerry. But Kerry is next in line. You're a better engineer than he is. I have no intention of being your token Maquis officer. Show me another qualified Maquis candidate and I'll consider him. Belana Torres. Who cannot control herself and who could not make it through the academy. She's the best engineer I've ever known. She could teach at the academy. I'm telling you, you're going to have to give them more authority if you want their loyalty. Theirs? Or yours, Commander? I'm trying to help you. I'm sorry you don't see that. Janeway is very skeptical. Her training and experience suggest that Starfleet protocols should be followed to the letter. It doesn't help that Chakotay is overstepping protocols right in front of her face on the bridge, leading to a tense discussion in the ready room. Both leaders are protective of their people and highly suspicious of the other's instincts. Janeway pursues the option in seemingly good faith by inviting Torres to an interview. It quickly goes off the rails as Torres has profound antipathy for authority and Starfleet in particular. This seems to confirm Janeway's concerns that she's not suited to the position. As will often become a pattern on Voyager, the relatively interesting character beats and sociological discussions are draped over a banal sci-fi plot. There's a black hole creating a time-distorted reflection of the Voyager, although they don't realize it yet. There's a space-time dilation thing. It does lead to a funny subplot that sees the EMH gradually shrunk 
an appropriate malady for the puffed-up doctor. And, by the way, I am now 68 centimeters shorter. I'd appreciate it if someone would repair my holographic projectors before I have trouble reaching my patients. Anyway, the Voyager finds herself inside the black hole, a singularity, as it was them trapped in the anomaly the whole time. A paradox. Classic. Torres and Carrie are both invited to the staff meeting to discuss the issue. Torres manages to keep her temper under wraps and impress Janeway with her technical instincts, giving them a plan of action. This plan is a deluge of dizzying technobabble, but we do see that Janeway, a former science officer, and Torres bond over their shared love of technical gibberish. Warp particles! The pair have to take a shuttle out to do more tech stuff. While on the shuttle, Janeway lets Torres know that, like one of Torres' old academy professors, she appreciates students who challenge her assumptions at times. Inspired by Torres, Janeway herself has to make a relatively reckless choice in punching the Voyager through the event horizon. Yeah, any science majors in the audience just shut your ears. In the epilogue, Janeway and Chakotay mend fences a little bit over Torres' inevitable promotion to chief engineer. It was really cool for me to, like, revisit especially these episodes. Like, I haven't watched Voyager in a really long time mm. and kind of seen, like, the origins of, like, Belana Torres and Chakotay. It was just, like, it reminded me of, like, looking through, like, an old photo album or, like, a yearbook. I'd be like, oh, do you remember when we were this stupid? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I was never that stupid. No, yeah, you're right. You're still that stupid. <laughs> ah! I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I love you. Um, so... But one thing that really struck out to me that I, I didn't remember was, like, just how angry Belana Torres was. Ah! Here. What's this? The medical reporter and Lieutenant Carey. Lieutenant Carey is an idiot! When I tell you I what I don't want to hear it! She was completely wrong about what she thought was going on. And to me, that was a really clear example of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, like, she thought i'm not cut out for this no one's going to accept me i'm always going to be fighting to have my voice heard and it's never going to work anyway and so she behaved that way and made choices that reinforced that story Mm. thus making it happen but at the same time her professors were like no you're brilliant i realized i couldn't make it in starfleet and believe me, no one was sorry to see me go. Professor Chapman was. He put a letter in your permanent file saying that should you ever reapply, he would support you. He thought you were one of the most promising cadets he'd ever taught. I fought with him almost every day. I was always questioning his, his methods, his assumptions, and he was always slapping me down like some upstart kid. I, I was surprised he didn't help me pack my bags. Some professors like students who challenge their assumptions, Belana. And so do some captains. And that's the tragedy, I think, of like self-fulfilling prophecies, especially when you realize the story you were telling yourself about how everyone feels about you was wrong. And it's like, wait, what? Yeah. That, that didn't have to go that way? Damn. Yeah, we'll do we'll do a, a Torres focused episode or episodes at some point because I think she's a really fascinating character. And this goes back to uh, she's one of those characters who does you have mentioned before, even in our episode about um, most recently about holodeck uh, meaning on the holodeck and talking about how Barclay's behavior probably stems from some sort of childhood lack of um, uh, having a fulfillment or motivation or, or feeling appreciated for who he is, and that led led to this neurotic behavior in adulthood. And with Torres, we do get 
a lot of insight into her childhood and where these things come from. And they do come from a very particular place of feeling insecure about her identity and her, her anger coming from her Klingon half and how that affected, um, the way her father saw her, a lot of stuff like that. So it's, it's very interesting, um, uh, food for thought for, for a future episode. But I, I agree with you. Like she has this, she knows how she's seen some of that. Yeah probably motivated by race some of that motivated by uh her identity in this case as a maquis um where she 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 puts up that front of anger and violence uh because it is something it is what is expected of her and therefore is like a quote-unquote safe place (laughs) ironically it's not it's very volatile but it is comfortable in in its way i would say familiar instead of comfortable and there's a whole deluge of science techno babble that we could get into about why our systems prefer familiarity over positive change. But just suffice it to say, if something is familiar, it's going to feel safer to us than something that does that feels infamiliar, even if like objectively it's better for us. Yeah. Now you've, you, you've mentioned that before. And I, th- I think Torres is a great yeah. example of that. Glossing over that for the moment. Um, she does certainly not fit the mold of a, an ideal Starfleet officer, at least at first. Yeah. And by that logic, Janeway is really skeptical of promoting her to any kind of position of authority or by proxy any of the other Maquis. And that's <clears throat> one of the interesting problems and one of the, the, the key things into like early Janeway here that I think is, is, is fascinating to, to Voyager as a show is that she comes across as really elitist and kind of this ivory tower, like... You're treating the Maquis on this ship like they're still your crew. I'm doing everything I can to integrate them into your crew, but frankly, you're not making it easy for me, Captain. I can't make it easy, Commander. Surely you can understand that. They don't have the discipline. They don't have the training. But some of them, like Bellana Torres, have the ability. The Starfleet officers on this ship have worked all their lives to earn their commissions. How am I supposed to ask them to accept a Maquis as their superior officer just because circumstances have forced us together? You didn't go to school and our meritocratic system is perfect. And if you didn't do X, Y, Z, you don't deserve, you know, I'm only being fair and saying that these people who worked for their commissions, et cetera, et cetera, deserve to be in a position of authority over you. And you'll never do more than that. You know, go to Starfleet Academy in 70 years when we get home. You know, it's it's absurd. Um, But Janeway can't sort of see past her indoctrination into that that system and i think that is a key aspect to understanding the maquis is the fact that a lot of this boils down to an anti-establishment kind of mode of thinking yeah you know what you're saying really reminds me about what we were talking about in our last episode about how Starfleet outside of DS9, you know, has no concept of what it's actually really like to be at DS9, to be in the demilitarized zone. The Maquis are a bunch of irresponsible hotheads. These hotheads are responsible for the bombing of the Baknor. I'm aware of that, Commander. We never should have allowed those colonists to remain on the Cardassian side of the demilitarized zone. Well, they're there, Admiral, and they're not leaving. Just because a group of people belong to the Federation, it does not mean that they are saints. Excuse me? Do you know what the trouble is? No. The trouble is Earth. Really? Like, I just, I see a lot of parallels between that and the way Janeway is starting out here. Like, she doesn't, 
she doesn't have a good read on like what the situation actually is. I think this is intentional with Janeway here is that, and we're going to see this as we go along with, with her character is that, so in the previous episode, the pilot of Voyager and caretaker, she makes one decision, which is very, you know, it's like, it goes against protocol. She decides to destroy the array, which could get them home in order to save the Ocampo, which is a violation of the prime directive. Tuvok points it out. And she's like, well, I feel like we're involved. She makes this decision and she strands everybody on the, in the Delta Quadrant. And I think she feels fucking awful about that. Um, to the point where now she's like, oh my God, I have to revert to my protocols and, and, and strict Starfleet procedures um, mm. and, and like very in line with the system, which I, I get on a, like an instinctive level of like, I better not rock the boat anymore. Um, but it ends up, she ends up contributing to the problem because all that does is further alienate these people that she's now charged with taking care of. She will snap back into something that she feels safer in, you know, to like make up for this guilt she's feeling. Yeah. Just like Torres, you snap back into the the familiar. The other thing about Torres that's key here is I think her personality type is exactly what the Maquis as an organization is going to be attracted to in terms of like recruitment. Like she is someone who is naturally leading with her emotions. She holds authority and contempt and um, she's also very capable and she knows she's capable and therefore uh, systems which are going to tell her that her, her abilities don't matter as much as her conformity are going to feel like the enemy. And so yeah. she's like prime um, target for, 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 for those kinds of systems. And it is interesting, you know, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that whatever else, you know, whatever sympathies we might have for the Maquis, and I think there are some to be had despite their conceptual flaws, uh, they are terrorists. And in the real world, terrorist cells, regardless of what judgments one would make about their goals and their philosophy and their methods, they do a similar thing where they target, um, uh, they recruit based on sort of these kinds of demographic and uh, sociological factors and say, you are the right person for my group. I've identified that. Yeah, they make them feel special when they're actually vulnerable. Yeah. It's funny, I was telling someone recently that we were doing like this mini series on the Maquis. Mm-hmm. And I actually told them like, oh yeah, like they're they're considered terrorists or rebels depending on what side you're going you're coming from, and I don't think I'd heard you refer to them as terrorists before, you know. And, and later on, like in the seventh season episode of Voyager that we're going to talk about later, they talk about how the rebellion is over, <laughs> and just like that that switch of language, I find really interesting. Yeah, well, there's a reason I wanted to look at Star Trek's in, in our first part of the series look at star trek's general view of terrorism leading into this because it is an important context to bear in mind you know the maquis are a terrorist organization born out of the federation primarily and therefore it is a unique perspective into what motivates them but at the end of the day they are still you know operating under the same sort of general uh, philosophy and construction as any other terrorist organization. And we have to remember how they're going to be seen 
by people like Janeway and Tuvok within this world is like, hey, you're like Al-Qaeda <laughs> or, you know what I mean? It's, it's hard to, to reconcile that, but it's, it's the truth. Yeah, I had a real visceral reaction when you said that. It was just like, I felt slapped back. And I was like, damn, that's a really hard comparison to make. And I almost don't want to make it, but I think that's more about my comfort level than how true it is or isn't. So I I admit that. Yeah. Anyway, despite Janeway's initial prejudices and her instincts being to adhere to sort of strict protocol with regard to the way Starfleet operates and her prejudice against the Maquis, she does take sort of a leap of faith here in the end based on what she's her experience personal experience with Torres and promote her to chief engineer of course and um buck that sort of meritocratic assumption about how these things work and a parallel that I see is something like let's say affirmative action or more a, a more recent verbiage would be um you know sort of inclusive casting or DEI initiatives that sort of thing where you say there are other priorities here besides raw ability. We're saying that we need to make choices about who is involved in an organization, who has authority and sort of agency within whatever organization we're talking about based on other factors. Like in music, right? We, we are used to the blind audition where, for those who don't know, you when you audition for like an orchestra or something, you are behind a curtain so that you, you, you cannot be seen. You don't know what gender they are, what race they are, anything other than you just hear they're, they're playing and, and make a, an assessment of them based on that. But there is a counter force within the arts world and I think within the world in general to say, hey, what we need to correct for things like colonialism and systemic racism and, and sexism um, and and have initiatives which promote a more diverse group of people within the organization, organizations generally and within authorities specifically. And that's kind of what we see here with, with Janeway's choice is like, hey, Taurus has a lot of strikes against her. Like she doesn't, she hasn't demonstrated that she's a great leader yet. <laughs> she punches someone because she disagreed with them. That's not great. And yes, she's a good engineer. And that's not unimportant. But Janeway says it's more important in this context for your fellow Maquis people to see that we are all equally valued in this hierarchy. And I need that I, I need that to happen for the sake of this community. And that is the sort of deciding factor. Two crew members have already filed complaints about her promotion. And she may be in for a tough period of adjustment. But I think Bolana is going to make a fine addition to this crew. Thank you, Elliot. I really appreciate you bringing this perspective. But there's one thing you said kind of early on that kind of like grabbed me in in not a great way. And I and I could tell I was having a little trouble hearing everything you were saying because of that. And so just fully admitting that's my experience. And I think what you say has a lot of merit, but I want to focus in on this thing you just talked about, about raw talent, you know, and also like the development of leadership. Mm -hmm. So I have been lucky enough to be put in positions of leadership that were learning experiences for me. Like I didn't exactly know how to do it until I was doing it. And, you know, and that's something that I'm really grateful for in my own experience about people letting me learn on the job, you know, and I think that does go against 
I think this cultural expectation that you should know everything, like, you know, and be fully formed and be fully capable. And I do appreciate that Janeway does give Torres the opportunity to learn how to be that kind of leader, even though she isn't already. And I think that's something that we should encourage more in our organizations is like, is, is development, you know, professional Mm -hmm. development, not just this like catch 22 of like, you have to have five years experience before you can get this job. But if no one is willing to give you that experience, how, how will you have, you know, it's that catch 22 that I think a lot of people understand as they apply for jobs. When you talk about raw talent, it starts to get into a, like a really delicate and murky position because I don't think anyone wants to feel like they're the token maquis, that they're the token person of color, and that they actually aren't qualified to do the job, but they're there because of something else. Like, no one really wants to be in that position. And in the example of Torres, like, she is the most skilled engineer. And like, I, I think that's really important to remember in this situation. Like she came up with solutions that no one else could. And that was ultimately, I, I think if she hadn't been able to do that, Jan, Janeway wouldn't have put her in that position. And so I just wanted to highlight that, you know, especially like, you're right, we do have to counter colonialism and systemic racism and give people opportunities that they have ultimately been denied. Mm-hmm. But I also want to say like those people are still, the idea is that there are people who are very capable at their job who are not given those opportunities. And I think we need to frame it that way. Instead of saying, we're going to give this to you even though you're not actually qualified. And I think it's a really delicate balance. And I just wanted to elicit that a little bit. Uh, Thank you for that, Elizabeth. And uh, I appreciate that, that correction, because it is important to make it. And, and, and let, let me be very clear about that, too, because, yes, Torres is the most qualified. What I think I, 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 I mean is that Janeway essentially has to get over her classism. Like, Torres mm, is yeah. the most qualified engineer. She lacks the training to be a leader, but that is something, as you point out, can be learned on the job. And there is a good reason for someone who hasn't been given that opportunity yet to be given it, given it and in a public way that demonstrates that Janeway is open to different modes of thinking on her ship because it gives other people that the opportunity to, to succeed and to make the most of their abilities. Um, so yeah, thank you. That is a much more positive and inclusive spin on it that, that I, I'm always grateful to have you here to provide. Hey, I, and you know, I don't think you meant anything maliciously. And like we said, like, we're all kind of learning how to do this. And sometimes we say things that have implications that we're not aware of, and we don't actually mean. And I think that's just part of the work is being like, hang on, wait a minute, language matters. Like, what are we saying? And what do we mean? From the beginning of season one to its impromptu finale, our next story is Learning Curve, also from 1995, written by Ronald Wilkinson and John Louise Mathias, and directed by David Livingston. The Voyager is experiencing technical failures, exemplified by Janeway's tedious Jane Austen knockoff hollow program being interrupted. The repairs to this problem cause their own disruption as a former Maquis, Dalby is discovered by Tuvok replacing one of the malfunctioning bioneural gel packs that make Voyager so fast and nimble, but without authorization. 
Remember that point about ridiculous technical plots? Well, this week, it turns out Neelix cultivated some cheese, which created a bacterial infection in the gel pack system, endangering the entire ship with cheese. Literal cheese. Anyway, Chakotay and Tuvok once again find themselves sparring over the former Maquis' insubordination. Janeway has evolved a bit over the last few months and decides the best approach is to help a few of the more maladjusted Maquis conform, uh, learn to be part of the team by participating in some cadet-level remedial training with Tuvok himself. Dalby and three other crewmen find themselves running and failing holodeck simulations, running laps through the Jeffries tubes. By the way, they only agree to this after Chakotay punches Dalby in the face, echoing Tora's behavior from Parallax. If they want to keep doing things the Maquis way, then it's going to involve a lot of bloody noses. This proves a failure, leading to Tuvok getting some advice from Neelix. These are Tila flowers. The stem is flexible. It's impossible to break. But occasionally on the same plant, there's a bloom whose stem is not so flexible. Ah, here's one. And when the stem is brittle, it breaks. You're saying that the Maquis crew is rigid and inflexible, that they will never adjust to Starfleet rules. No, Mr. Falcon. I'm saying that you are rigid and inflexible. But maybe if you learn to bend a little, you might have better luck with your class. Those Maquis aren't Starfleet cadets. You can't treat them the same way. Get to know them. Huh? Try to find out what they're like inside. While the crew investigates the cheese, Tuvok tries to apply Neelix's advice in a game of pool with Dalby, but the effort reads as insincere and Dalby isn't having it. The ultimate character resolution comes when the gel pack malfunctioning reaches a breaking point and causes the Maquis Quartet and Tuvok to be stuck in the cargo bay as it fills with toxic gas. I thought Starfleet rules said that was an unacceptable risk, <coughs> going back to save him. It was. However... I recently realized that there are times when it is desirable to bend the rules. Lieutenant, if you can learn to bend the rules, I guess we can learn to follow them. Did you say cheese? Anyway, the EMH tells Janeway to give the Voyager a fever and kills the infection. You know, I know we're focusing on how contrived this whole, like, Maki conflict is within the franchise, but also, how contrived is it that a that with all the technology that the Federation has, they didn't think about food, which everyone eats, <laughs> affecting mechanical, bio, whatever techno babble stuff it is. Like that, yeah. that just feels like really like that's that's the that's the hole in this technology. Yeah, I. I'm a bigger Voyager fan than most Trekkies, I think, than a lot of them anyway. Right. Um, but so maybe I'm the wrong person to do this, but I do. I'm going to give a little bit of leeway. I, I find the cheese infects the ship plot in stupid and, and ridiculous. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, you remember back in The Wounded that we did. Oh, I can still remember the aromas when my mother was cooking. She cooked? Oh, she didn't believe in a replicator. She thought real food was more nutritious. She handled real meat. She touched it and cut it. And I think the idea is, okay, this is a starship, and all the food that they're ever going to eat is replicated. They're, they're not even contemplating. Remember that the mess hall existing yeah. is a Neelix innovation. It was just replicator, Janeway's dining room, and tables. Um, so the idea that there's real food, especially like cheese being cultivated, is something 
I still think it's insane that they, this is a ship that re, you know has antimatter and repels you know black holes and stuff. Can't deal with bacteria bacteria in the in the in the in the air um, to the point where it's going to destroy the ship is nuts. But yeah, what happened to all like you know when people transport in and out? There's like biofilters. Why aren't those just always there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. A, a wizard did it. I have a hard time necessarily, well, I don't know. I feel guilty about this, but my favorite line in the whole episode is Dalby is explaining to Tuvok in the cargo bay when they're being told that they're, they've been selected for this special training. The problem we're having, Lieutenant, is that this whole thing is insulting. We didn't ask to come aboard this ship, but we understand the situation we're in, and we've done the best job we can. And now you're telling us that's not good enough. That is correct. <laughs> oh... Good social skills right there, Tuvok. Good job. <laughs> uh, it's so perfectly Vulcan, and it's the kind of thing I I, I can't I can't help it. I admit that I want to say to people sometimes. I'm like, yep, yep. You're not. It, you. I know you tried. That, try harder. <laughs> so why is that your favorite line? Because you want to say that to people. Uh, I think this goes back. You know, we, you and I have. Uh, I think butted heads is maybe too strong, but we've talked a little about this when we've talked about Spock and Michael and the whole Vulcan. Um, ethos and like whether or not you know i find vulcan philosophy and that general sort of adherence to logic to be one generally aspirational to something that is not pursued enough in our non-star trek society and you i think have said to me that it is overly emphasized in in especially western culture and that we don't leave enough room for the other aspects of our our reasoning and sort of emotional um expression so for me it's just sort of satisfying to see someone see like yep i you i don't really care <laughs> you feel like you've tried so hard you're not doing well enough try to do better yeah it's fair it's fair um it's funny i when you were just summarized everything i just said i almost was like yes that is correct <laughs> yes I, <laughs> almost got there i almost got that in yeah, let's argue about that in another episode. Fair enough, that? Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, I just, <laughs> All right, we're, we'll, we're put. Yeah, yeah. No, no. It's it's a, it's a fair point. You know, this episode I think gave a really really clear example of like what you and I have been struggling with in this whole like mini series that we're doing, in that the Maquis seem to be more interested in principles than actually what what is actually going on. You know, and we see that um, when Dalby is caught repairing the biogel. And he's like, I saw a malfunctioning gel pack and I fixed it. What's the problem? Your repair interrupted a number of ships' functions. That is the problem. I guess I'm used to doing things a little differently. On our ship, when something went wrong, you fixed it. I would remind you, Mr. Dalby, that you are no longer on a Maquis ship. And it escalates so quickly into an argument mm. about principles and morals versus like procedure and like what the repair was actually about. And, and it, to me, it just really pulls back the curtain on, like, the whole Maki mindset of, like, it's about principles. Uh, that's what I'm arguing about, not actually this biogel pack. Yeah, uh, uh, we, we, we touched on this quite a bit in the last episode, especially with regards to, like, people like Cal Hudson um, and, and Roe, where there's this emotionalism at the heart of things that is papered over with this idea of it's about something you know it's about um like you say principles and this was put into relief for me when dalby explains his little backstory to tuvok which is so so cliched 
We lived on the Bajoran frontier. It was a hard life. I coped by getting into a lot of trouble. I was angry at everybody and everything. Till a woman came along and taught me about love. And for a while, I wasn't angry anymore. Three Cardassians raped her and smashed her skull. I joined the Maquis and tried to slaughter as many of them as I could find. Uh, okay. Uh, Taking it at face value, that's horribly tragic, but it's also, it does not, it is so inconsistent with what the Federation is supposed to be. Why in the world is this how Dalby grew up? What, what led, what circumstances led this human being to, to that kind of life? That's insane. Um, and th this to me is why, the, you know, other than very sort of specifically motivated incidents moving forward. This is the last time the Maquis as an issue is brought up on Voyager um, is at the end of the first season here. And the reason is because the concept just doesn't work. It doesn't fit. And as soon as you remove the political context that is supposed to justify their actions, all you're left with is these personality differences um, between people who are sort of suited for Starfleet and people who aren't. And that all just comes down to emotional disagreements and sort of, like I said, like personality traits, um, temperaments that you can work through that stuff, I feel like, pretty easily if you're remotely mature. <laughs> no, I, I think you bring up a really good point that, like, it's just another inconsistency trying to justify the Maquis' existence and, like, their motivations. And, yeah, at face value, it is a really tragic story. Like, if that did happen, like, that did happen to him in this fictional universe and that I can, you can understand why he did what he did given those experiences. But yeah, like if, if the Federation is supposed to be post poverty, you know, and post scarcity, how, where did that fit in? You yeah. know? And I also find it really ironic that like, you know, you said the Maquis were created for Voyager. It started in these other series and then like, you know, tossed it to Voyager and then after a season they were like oh this doesn't work like outside of the setting of the demilitarized zone and the Bajorans and the Federation and the Cardassians yeah. and to me that's just like yeah duh <laughs> but I do think you're right that underneath the theater of like Maquis rebellion terrorism all that are these differences in experience and personality and temperament and it's really outlined between the people who have gone through, you know, the commissioned Starfleet officers and then these civilians who have been put into this situation without really their, without the training and honestly without the buy-in, you know, mm -hmm. they're like, you know, if I suddenly was like stranded and had to adopt into a military structure, I would be so unhappy. But I also think it's like a really interesting example of like the hidden social contract that people abide by. You know, Dalby and the other Maki personnel who have been asked to do this program with Tuvok, you know, they're saying like, you know, Tuvok has no authority over them. You know, he's trying, but like to them, that structure has no power or give to them. And they're like, we're not going to do this. And then Chakotay very clearly is like, cool, you don't want to you don't want to abide by this social contract of like Starfleet protocol. Here's the alternative. I'm going to punch you. Yeah. You know, and to me, like it's such a violation of 
you know, normal, polite society that we completely forget about, you know, but when it's violated, we suddenly can see it, see it so clearly, you know, like I can expect to walk down the street and assume that no one is going to like pull my glasses off, throw them on the ground and stomp them, you know, like Mm -hmm. that is in the social contract. Like that is not something you do, but as soon as it happens, you realize just how fragile that whole like social agreement is what is highlighted between like the Starfleet personnel and the Maquis personnel in this stage of like their, you know, coming together is the different relationships to authority. And, you know, we talked a lot about how Balana had certain childhood experiences that like led her to behave the way she did. The same can be true for all people and how they relate to authority, you know? So if you're a little kid, your parent, you know, and your parents are the authority, how do they treat you? You know, can you count on them to be just? Do you have a reason to trust them? And if you don't, you know, if your parents actually aren't there for you or they're very confusing or they say they're going to help you and then they actually hurt you, like that creates your blueprint for what authority is. And moving forward in your entire life, you're going to assume authority is either to be trusted or not trusted based on these early childhood experiences. And given Dalby's story, sounds like he couldn't really count on people in authority to be there for him. So why would he, why would he trust them? Why would he think that they have anything to offer him? That's something that we're now seeing as a pattern. Um, people who have these sort of traumas from their childhood where they, they learned that the, uh, the uh, given social contract, the given authority that they were just sort of handed here, this is what is, this is the order, this is the hierarchy. Um, yeah. didn't work for them. Uh, we talked about Balan a little bit. Uh, Dolby has his backstory here. Cal Hudson, he lost his wife the same way Cisco did. Um, Roe, of course, lost her family to the occupation. Um, Chakotay, for his part, you know, I don't know how well you remember this, but in his backstory, the weird, bad, racist way that the producers and Voyager did this aside, he had this whole conflict with his tribe and with his father in particular, where he didn't want to accept the given hierarchical structures that were handed to him. And so that seems to be a running theme here with people who are, as we say, sort of primed to be in, in, a, for, in a cause like the Maquis. You frame what they're doing as noble, and you, you sort of take that for granted, and then you and your backstory, you fill in the rest and get yourself to the point where you are um, involved in this in this terrorist cell um that that, that it, it's pretty fascinating and we're going to talk about this more when we get to the next episode like how what is the end of that kind of mindset at what point do you reintegrate into a social contract like if you say to yourself well this has gone too far no further <laughs> um you say i've reached my breaking point with this hierarchy i'm going to rebel when then do you say, okay, we're done. Now it's time for society to, 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 to take hold again. And here these people are stuck in the Delta Quadrant. They need to work together to get home. What is, what is that? I'm really hesitant to dismiss the Maquis' experiences or desires for change. You know, because I do think... There are people who have been oppressed who are asking for the social contract to change. 
And I don't want to say that they shouldn't be able to do that, you know. Um, so I'm noticing my own hesitancy in that. And also, I think if you really look at the histories of people who do commit violent and aggressive acts against other people, that's usually happened to them. You right. know, like there's usually a reason why, there's always a reason why people are acting the way they do. And I don't bring that up to like justify like violent behavior or terrorism or anything like that. But just as a way to say, like, if if someone, if you're looking at someone and you cannot understand what the hell they're doing or why, just just imagine that, like, what would cause them to act that way? And then I think it just it, it expands our ability to have compassion for people who are suffering. Because if you are happy and healthy, you know, if you've had a good life, you would behave a certain way. But if you have been oppressed and tortured and harmed and if terrible things have happened to you that kind of create this like emotional and psychic wound in you that you can't function in a certain way like as much as i think we have to hold like boundaries of social responsibility and like personal responsibility and like what is acceptable and how you treat other people and show up for your community i just i also just want to honor that like people who are that disruptive have had really disruptive lives. And you just want to be able to go downstream, I think. And that's not, you know, that's like, again, as a therapist, like that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the wound. I'm looking for the reason why this happened and trying to focus on the hurt that can be healed so that that behavior doesn't happen anymore. And that's, I'm not advocating that that's what everyone should do, but if you do, you know, but just that, something just to keep in mind it's not everyone's responsibility to hold that perspective but i just wanted to say it's there we jump all the way to the beginning of season seven with repression written by kenneth biller and mark haskell smith and directed by vinrish colby it aired in late 2000 the teaser shows us a Bajoran in the Alpha Quadrant, chanting Bajoran words. The room is filled with Voyager paraphernalia, and we see that he has a little database of all the former Maquis currently on Voyager. In the Delta Quadrant, newlyweds Taurus and Paris enjoy a movie on the holodeck. These will make the images on the screen appear three-dimensional. Let me get this straight. You've gone to all this trouble to program a three-dimensional environment that projects a two-dimensional image, and now you're asking me to wear these to make it look three-dimensional again? Great, isn't it? Their little makeout session is interrupted by the discovery of an unconscious crewman, Tabor, whom we last saw about a season ago in Nothing Human. The EMH determines that Tabor was attacked, and Janeway assigns Tuvok to investigate the incident. While Tuvok pursues an increasingly frustrating series of dead ends, more and more former Maquis crewmen are found like Tabor attacked and unconscious. This pattern leads to a surprising reignition of the Maquis Starfleet suspicion amongst the crew. Meanwhile, Tuvok's attention is drawn to the fact that the Voyager is now receiving regular data streams from the Alpha Quadrant thanks to the efforts of Commander Barkley. 
His instincts, such as they can be for a Vulcan, prove correct, as we eventually see that Tuvok himself is the culprit, inflicting injuries on the Maquis via mind meld. However, he retains no conscious memory of these attacks. In the order in which they were attacked, the Maquis victims gradually awaken from their comas, likewise with no memory of the incidents. Through meditation and investigation, Tuvok discovers his guilt and begins seeing visions of the Bajoran from the teaser. It turns out that the Bajoran, a man called Tiro, sent a kind of subliminal trigger in the last message Tuvok received from his son in the Alpha Quadrant. He was a Bajoran Vedic. He worked with the Maquis. Doing what? Counterintelligence. He was thrown out for experimenting with mind control. He thought it was a good way to recruit agents. Tiro was a fanatic. He'd go to any extreme for the Maquis. He called the rest of us traitors for rejecting his ideas. Swore he'd fight the war on his own if he had to. Tura recruited Tuvok using his techniques while Tuvok was undercover with the Maquis. When Tuvok recovers the memories fully through meditation, he initiates the endgame for all the attacks and triggers Chakotay with a Bajoran code phrase, who systematically awakens the rest of the former Maquis, who finally enact that Maquis rebellion we've been promised since Parallax. The twist, however, is that Tuvok's meditative efforts did finally expunge Tiro's influence from his mind, so he plays double agent for Chakotay for a little bit before finally double-crossing him and restoring the crew and ship to normal. So, Elliot, it really warmed my heart that Tuvok's son decided to study music composition. Right. <laughs> like, that was just, that was really sweet. I've decided to study musical composition instead. I would have sent you my latest construct, but they won't give me enough room in this data stream. Because, you know, that's what we studied. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, yay, music nerds! <laughs> Great. Yeah, and it's a nice little callback. If my children had difficulty sleeping, I would play music for them. I like music. Unfortunately, I don't have my lute. What's that? It is a five-stringed instrument tuned on a diatonic scale. It can be very soothing. My youngest son was particularly fond of it. He traveled through the windswept hills and crossed the barren fireplains to find the silent monks of Kerr. Still unfulfilled, he journeyed home, told stories of the lessons learned, and gained true wisdom by the giving. Yes, musical um, tendencies. So it's it's, and it's also a nice thing to see that a, you know, an artistic pursuit from a logical race and a logical being. I I like that. That mixture, it's, 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 it's rich. Um, yeah. One thing I noticed is that, uh, like in our Geordie episode, you remember in Aquiel, you uh, pointed out to me the fact that creating a sci-fi explanation for her memory loss was not necessary and kind of glossed over the fact that trauma can lead to normal memory loss anyway. We have a similar situation happening here where, you know, I, I don't know, I feel like Tuvok's um, the, the trauma that he went through and then attacking people and forgetting the details about it is something that could happen without the sci-fi mind meld explanation mind control thing over it. And I just, I wanted to point that out because I wanted you to pat me on the head for remembering what you told me. Cue affirmations. Elliot, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I try once in a while. Um, 
Every now and then. Every now and then. Um, but you know what's funny? I didn't notice that. Oops. <laughs> I won't tell your teachers. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please. Yeah. No, no, no. I, they will not let me graduate. No, that's fine. Um, no, I, I think you're right. I think I just was going with the, like, I kind of assumed it was like sci-fi hypnosis is what was happening. So maybe in that way, I was just already assuming a real life explanation mm. as to like why that was happening, like the dissociation and all that. But you, you are right. Like it didn't need to be some techno mind meld reason for why Tuvok couldn't remember and why also the people he was mind melding with couldn't remember either. Um, Great so, band yeah. name, by the so way, start- techno mind meld. Techno mind meld. Yeah. So, um, you know, I guess this is an example of Star Trek writers making things more complicated than they need to be. And the only time they've ever done that. (laughs) Especially on Voyager. And I don't mean to keep harping on like how convoluted this Maquis thing is, which I also have now gotten from you. Like to me, that didn't really register. But now that we've been doing this, I'm just like, no, 100%. Like this does not make sense. Um, what the hell was Tiro's, like, original plan? And what was, like, his plan for Voyager in the Delta Quadrant? Like, I, I have no idea, like, what the purpose of this whole thing is. Um, I, I want to come back to his plan in this, ep- like, in the current moment, like, what his plan is with Voyager being lost. But I do think there's some semblance of logic to what he was originally planning. I mean, Chakotay calls him a fanatic, so it's like we don't have to necessarily have a rational um, explanation, but I, I do think there's something to it. His original idea when he captured Tuvok, you know, Tuvok was undercover at the time, and the idea was once he was finished f- uh, ferreting out Chakotay and delivering that cell to Janeway, who was trying to track him down, um, this is in the pilot, in Caretaker, then Tuvok would return to Starfleet, you know, openly, and then... Um, uh, Tiro and the Maquis would have a double agent for them for them to do reconnaissance, reconnaissance or whatever. Like, I think there was something potentially practical about that um, idea. Okay. Uh, but yeah, like I said, I'll, I'll return to what I think is going on now, seven years later. You know, I watched all three of these episodes in one sitting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I watched the two episodes in season one, and then I jumped immediately to this episode And knowing that seven years of the television show and of the experience had gone on in between that time, when the my crew versus your crew conversation between Janeway and Chakotay came up, I was floored. It's either a coincidence or they're being singled out. There hasn't been any hostility between the Maquis and the rest of the crew for years. Maybe someone on your crew couldn't put the past behind them. My crew? You know, I just was, that hit really strongly to me, knowing that that hadn't been an issue for seven years, and then all of a sudden it was. And to me, just really spoke about, like, implicit bias, that we can work really, really hard to overcome, and on some level it's there. And it can be exposed under stress and under anxiety, and when you feel like you're under threat. Like, we know, we fall back into these more more deeply rooted, often problematic patterns, yeah. you know, even if we've done so much work to like try to really connect. And, and to me, like that was a kind of sad moment to realize like underneath all the progress that they've made, there was still this implicit like you versus us. And that, that was, that hit really hard for me. I, I agree. Um, 
as I've said, the, the, the writing of the Maquis and Voyager is often criticized, and I'll come back to that as well. Um, but there is, you know, something inside these people had to be, quote-unquote, awakened, right? It's not just pure mind control. I mean, Jacote mentions things like how he still doesn't trust Tuvok because of Tuvok's betrayal way back in Caretaker. But I can't forget what happened seven years ago. You have a history of betraying the Maquis. Like, whatever weird mind-meldy thing is happening, and it is contrived and weird, there, there are elements, strong elements, of who these people are underneath that are just sort of being allowed to be at the surface and the other stuff, the stuff that they've learned, the growth that they've done coming together is being repressed, which is, I think is why the episode is called repression. Cause it's not, it's not repressing. You know what I mean? It's not like it's, it's not, it's not like they're giving new personalities. They're just, we're going to take all of this positivity and these relationships that you've, that have mended your conflict and conflicting personalities and Repress those so that your worst instincts come to the surface. That is sad. <laughs> and also doesn't need a sci-fi explanation. Like, yeah. when when people feel threatened, the logical, rational part of our brain shuts off. And then all you have is the fear and the threat and how do you respond and how do you survive. And, like, I, I also saw that with the Maquis, especially, you know, like, the amount of paranoia and fear and conspiracies that a lot of the Maquis members were sharing, you know, now that this was happening, like, was also really striking, especially after seven years of, like, building rapport. I've never trusted the Vulcan. He's betrayed us before. He was doing his job. He didn't care about the Maquis back then. Why should he now? We're not Maquis anymore. Tell that to our friends in sickbay. Oh, come on, we put our differences aside seven years ago. It's ancient history. Maybe history is repeating itself. Look, the truth is we don't know what we're up against. But the last thing we need right now is an outbreak of paranoia. When people kind of really latch on to conspiracy theories, from the outside, we can just look at that and be like, you are crazy. That makes absolutely no sense. But we're not really looking at the reasons why they might believe that. And it's not, again, it's not rational. But if you have the choice between feeling vulnerable and helpless or the choice of feeling like you actually know what's going on and people can't get can't fool you. And that gives you some sense of like protection and agency that you otherwise lack. And honestly, like I most of the time when people believe conspiracy theories, it's for that reason. It's giving them something emotionally that they want, especially because they don't want to feel another way. They don't want to feel like they live in a precarious world where danger is lurking around the corner and there's nothing they can do about it. Yeah, well, because regardless of which thing is true, there's nothing they can do about it. But at the very least, psychologically speaking, it's like, well, at least I know what's killing me. At least I understand it. And all you other dummies don't even realize it's yeah, it's it's the that crab mentality. Um, it's also a really sad parallel to what the, the way social progress tends to happen. You know, I mean, not to get on too far a tangent, but we are in the midst of a, of a pretty uh, insurgent uh, transphobia uh, pandemic sweeping uh, many of our our cultures at the moment, and it feels a lot like backsliding 
to the days of really open, rampant homophobia, which I think a lot of us on some level thought that as a culture we had moved past and then, you know, something happened and it opened the floodgates again and suddenly we're kind of back to these same arguments. It's like, did these last 10 years, however many years, not happen? Like, am I nuts? <laughs> um, and that's sort of how it feels here with, with the Maquis suddenly caring about this cause again. I'm with you that like what's happening in American society and politically as well right now is heartbreaking and not in the direction I ultimately want us to go. Like I I agree with you fully in that way. I'm slightly comforted and maybe this is my own conspiracy theory so I can feel better about it. Disclaimer there. (laughs) Um, I'm slightly comforted knowing that systems expand and contract naturally Like, you know, you have the cliche saying, like, healing isn't linear because you'll make a lot of progress and then you're going to slip back into old ways. And it's like two steps forward, one step back. Human growth is like that. You know, psychological healing is like that. I think that and I think the progress of society is also like that. There's an expansion and a contraction. And it really depends on, like, what side you're on that will define what's the expansion and what's the contraction. But I think that's what we're what's going on right now. We've made a lot of progress and now we're contracting. But I also don't I, I am somewhat comforted by just knowing that pattern and trusting in the expansion again. And also knowing we have a lot of work to do to keep this contraction from going too far. So let me return to Tiro for a moment and talk about what his motivations after the seven years have passed. And now that the Maquis is no longer a thing in the Alpha Quadrant, what he might hope to accomplish. And the answer is nothing particularly rational, but I do think his irrationality is very illuminating about what goes into becoming a Maquis and and living as one, which is that it is about this bucking of authority is about prioritizing emotional sort of an emotional need to buck authority and uh, eschew the establishment over necessarily having clear eyed political goals. So we can see very clearly in repression with with Tiro that there is no plausible political purpose, right, for him reawakening these Maquis, even if somehow Voyager got home the next day. Um, what are they going to do? Like, there's nothing to be done anymore. And yet the, the need to do this is present in him. And I think that dynamic is true of the Maquis prior to their being wiped out. Spoiler, I know we're going to talk about this a little later, but prior to their being wiped out by the Dominion, um, that was already true. Where what their stated goals were politically you know, by Cal Hudson and by um, Michael Eddington, which we're going to talk to about next time, uh, are achievable in a very different way that they, you know, it goes back to the conversation between Cork and Sakona. It's like, they have weapons, you have weapons, everyone has weapons, but right now, no one has a clear advantage. So the price of peace is at an all-time low. This is the perfect time to sit down and hammer out an agreement. Don't you get it? Attacking the Cardassians now will only escalate the conflict. 
and make peace more expensive in the long run. And yet something about the romantic, emotionally fulfilling context of being the underdog, fighting the good fight against the man is too tempting for these people to to turn away from. You know, it's like what we saw with Dalby. You know, it's not about whatever the like surface situation is. It's about what it represents. It's about what it means. And if you're fighting for a principle, like that's really hard to feel resolved about. Mm -hmm. You know, another thing that struck me and it has been striking me the whole time we've been rewatching, we've been watching these Maquis episodes is that the first time I watched these, I was very much like Starfleet's right. You know, Mm -hmm. like they're the good guys. And now I'm like, Oh, Oh no, I actually really am starting to empathize more with the Maquis. Interesting. And like, that's really surprising to me to like, just see the difference. And, I don't know how many years ago I originally watched Voyager, but it wasn't that long ago. So having the distance for us of time of when these episodes were were formulated and and, and when this idea of the Maquis was sort of invented in the writer's room, similarly to the way, as we've focused on this week, Voyager itself has distance from the conflict, which is supposed to justify this this movement um, physically. Uh, It gives us... a a different lens through which to, to have empathy for the different sides here. And, you know, setting aside the cliched aspects of like Dolby's backstory and whatnot, like when you're not in the heat of it, the way like, let's say Cisco and Picard are where like they have a specific job to do that is about counter insurgency against the Maquis. They need to stop this from happening. It's their, it's their, it's their focus. And so getting sidetracked with, whatever empathy sympathies they might have for the different people in their lives who, who, who are in the Maquis have to have to take a backseat for their, for the sake of their professions, you know, on Voyager, no, it's inert, right? Like they have a whole, both of them, the Maquis and the Starfleet people have a completely different objective. They need to survive and they need to get home. And being Maquis or being Starfleet has nothing to do <laughs> with the, the reality of that goal. But the way it does matter is in the way one approaches problem solving. You know, you look at, of course, in both uh, Learning Curve and Parallax, we have a punch. <laughs> Someone gets punched in the face. It's like, a, this is yeah. how the Maquis do things. And we have, you know, Dolby making the repair without authorization. We have Torres sort of speaking up out of turn. It's like, as you mentioned, there's there's the, 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 the symbol and the, the meaning, and then there's the, the practicality of it on the one side. But even in repression, where we're so far removed temporarily from what the Maquis are, what is the one thing Chakotay does? They all take out, they, they take off their uniforms, and Chakotay's like, we're going to have brandy even when we're on duty because we're not bound by these Starfleet strictures anymore. We're Maquis. We've always been Maquis. It doesn't change anything. It's like, let, let's say Chakotay were successful, they got rid of the rest of the Starfleet people and Voyager went on to the Alpha Quadrant as a Maquis ship. They have to do the same shit. They have to find a wormhole or whatever and, and get home. And um, it, it, all that changes is the like emotional context, the like way at which it feels to be on the ship. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like people are just going to open panels and repair things whenever they want without checking ahead of time whether it's okay. 
when two parties in conflict suddenly have the same enemy, then they their focus shifts, you know. And in this case, the both Maquis and Starfleet had to get home. They weren't fighting with each other anymore. They both had the same problem and the same goal. And, like, that brought them together. And that that didn't change even when, like, the Maquis resurfaced in the, in the Maquis way. But also, what the fuck is the Maquis way? Like, they... that's something again like that doesn't make sense to me like the maquis were like a thing for a minute and yet the way the way that the crew members talk it's as if like there's Mm. this identity and these culture and a tradition Mm. that i'm just like wait where did that come from yeah um i i can't argue with that like it is pretty off the cuff. I mean, there's this idea that in back in the DS9 episode that, um, you know, these loyalties go all the way back to the settlement of the planets, which are now considered part of the DMZ. And so these people have a, have like a community history with each other that, you know, precedes even the Cardassian War. So this in theory, goes back to just a sort of a sense of community and this idea that they've had to do things their own way on the frontier for, I don't know, decades, um, ever since these colonies were set up. I I can kind of get behind that. I still have a hard time with the idea that they were so struggling in the context of being in the Federation. Like, that was their choice. But um, to me, it boils down to a personality type, and specifically what I tend to see in all these Maquis characters is like petulance, like a real childish reaction against authority and systems and social contracts. And I would love a psychological take on what what makes that a thing. What is petulance about? Well, the use of the word petulance, I actually think says a lot, which, you know, it it means acting in kind of a childish way, you know, like a little bit of a temper tantrum. And, And that relates back to what we were talking about earlier about how our early childhood experiences with authority create the blueprint for what we assume authority is like for the rest of our lives Mm -hmm. and whether or not we can trust them, whether or not they're actually going to be there for us or if we have to fend for ourselves. But, you know, also like what comes to my mind is, you know, adolescent psychology. Part of a person's job during adolescence is to figure out who they are and to differentiate from their parents and part of that is an act of rebellion. And a part of that is trying on a bunch of different versions of who you think you are or who you think you could be. And, and just kind of trying different personas on. And also bucking authority because you need to be able to be separate from it. Because the idea of being, uh, being immersed in it is very threatening. Like you could lose yourself if you don't do this. Mm. And I wonder if there's some of that going on for the Maquis. Like, they will lose their identity if they do just conform to what the Federation wants them to do. And there's a rebellion in that because they, you know, again, like, they think that Starfleet hasn't been there for them. So why should they acquiesce in that way when they don't even think doing that will give them what they want? It speaks to the motivation of these people to live the way they lived prior to the the Cardassian War, again, is that, you know, 
there, there's a contempt that a lot of them have for like replicators, for example, like the idea of living with technology in this kind of utopian way where they're like, no, 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 we're going to farm and struggle on purpose because that's human. I, I don't know. Like it's, it's hard for me to, 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 to empathize. And I admit that this is maybe a me thing more than anything else, but I, I get the, you know, I enjoy I love cooking, right? I love doing that it is really fulfilling. But if on a day to day basis, I could not have to spend any money on food and just go to a little machine that spits something out. I'm not going to I'm not going to go to war <laughs> for my right to cook a meal on my stove. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It just it, it's it's hard for me. But I, I, I think there is. That is what it speaks to is that for some people that's worth it. Well, there again, like you're looking at the surface level of like, it's not, but it's not actually about being able to cook your own food. It's about what that represents Mm -hmm. and what it means. And like the personal struggle of these people and like everything they've had to endure and fight for. And suddenly that not being worth anything to the Federation. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm just trying to be devil's advocate. The, the only other context we have for the origins of the Maquis, again, came from an episode we didn't look at directly, but we, we talked about was Journey's End, where we have the, the Native American tribe on that planet that, right, they wanted to stay. This was the yeah. impetus of it. This planet holds a deep spiritual significance for us. It may be necessary to remove these people by force. We can't do this. These people deserve better than to be removed from their homes. I understand, but now is not the time Do you time know what they're trying to do? They're preparing to beam you away and take you to their ship. You're not gonna let them do that, are you? No, we won't. Leave now. The difference being, of course, material in that in real life history, that being forced off your land had consequences which were like genocidal. And in this case, it is just about the feeling of being connected to the land that that, that's our primary objection to manifest destiny and the trail of tears and and whatnot is not that it made people feel bad it's that it killed people and destroyed a culture just about and i don't know it creates this sense of moral outrage that i think is at the heart of what we're looking at here and we're going to keep looking at hypothetically speaking if the U.S. government told you, Elliot, that, you know, you had to move, you know, I know you live on the East Coast right now, and that you had to move to Canada, and you could take all your things, and, you know, you would still survive, and you would be in a big city, but you would just completely have to relocate. Like, how would you feel? Like, you're not dying, mm-hmm. but you are losing something. This is true. I would feel put upon. I would feel aggrieved. I would feel antagonistic about it. I don't think I I would feel like I was ready, ready to pick up a gun. Voyager, 
the series that the Maquis were created for threw out the concept after season one. <laughs> like, it just wasn't a thing. Yeah. So I think, in a way, I do think that speaks to, like, how well this idea actually settled into the Star Trek universe, you know? And that it kind of had to get wedged in there and, like, didn't integrate. It just, like, was in there and then, like, taken out, and then it was, like, just a thing. Yeah, I agree. Um, I just, I think it was poorly thought out. I think there, I'd have to think harder about how to do this in a way that would have worked. Voyager gets a lot of shit um, for its writing, and I don't agree with all of it. I, I, I empathize with the frustration that people feel that there wasn't a lot of continuity in the show, um, that some problems were solved too easily, too much techno babble. All of that is true. With respect to the Maquis specifically, it, it was conceptually flawed before Voyager was on the air. It just, there was nowhere for it to go um, that made any real sense within the Star Trek universe. You'd have to rewrite the entire history of where it was coming from. So for me, I think they did just about all you could do with it, which is to say, hey, you have these people with different personalities attracted to this organization, as we talked about with a specific relationship to authority, and that's going to cause some initial strife when all forced together on this little ship. But as soon as, uh, uh, you know, because they aren't horrible, selfish people, <laughs> for the most part, eventually they're going to realize that they need to set that minutiae aside and focus on the common goal, which is what they did after about a year. Um, save some Vulcan weird mind melty stuff <laughs> down the line. Um one place the Maquis were still explored to the extent that they could be um, was still in the Alpha Quadrant where the conflict was relevant, of course, and that's going to take us to the Michael Eddington arc, as it's known, on DS9, which is where we're going to put our focus for next time. So I really uh, look forward to getting uh, more insights from you, Elizabeth, on that, on that front and continuing this deep delve with you. Thank you, Elliot. Like, you know... Um... You do so much behind the scenes in addition to just like having these great conversations. And I just really appreciate you and everything you're doing to, you know, put this out into the world. So just thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. I, I really appreciate doing this too. And I appreciate our, all of our listeners and patrons and followers and subscribers. Um, as always, comments, likes, um, ratings on Apple Podcasts, all that stuff is is very helpful. Um, we just want to make sure that the conversation is shared with as many Trek fans as, um, as, as we can. So until we continue with our topic for next time, Elizabeth, I will look forward to talking to you. See you then. Dolby's backstory. I keep wanting to say Dolby from like Harry Potter, just FYI. But you mean um, Dobby? Do, do, thank you. I can't even get that right. Okay. Why wax on, wax off? Okay.